the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, hello there. Good afternoon. Welcome. It is the 11th day of January already in uh, 2022. And boy, how did we get here? (laughs) Time flies when you're having COVID, I guess. any rate, good to have you with us on this edition of Lifeline. Lots to talk about today. A little bit later on in this hour... Um, We've asked Bob Zadek to dial in, uh, largely because of his expertise as a constitutional historian, because there is a subject matter that was brought to my attention by a listener, Lee in Palo Alto, regarding a new Senate bill that went into effect January 1st of this year that is ostensibly designed to ease the Bay Area housing crunch, but may have just the opposite effect. It may make life in the Bay Area far more worse. So if you're someone who likes your neighborhood and um, lives there, bought there for a reason, you like your neighbors, proximity to good schools, all that, imagine your next-door neighbor across the street on either side of you tearing their house down and putting up a four-unit fourplex. What do you think that would do to traffic congestion, quiet enjoyment? (laughs) Well, it's now law in California that they could, in fact, do that. And the best part is local ordinances, your city council, your county can do absolutely nothing to stop it with some very bare minimum criteria. It's a frightening thought. And it goes to the heart of property rights. So we're going to talk about today the issue of Senate Bill 9 and its potential impact on your life. Bob Zadek joins us later on. I want to begin, though, with um, (laughs) a group that just doesn't know when to quit. The um, Freedom From Religion Foundation, hard at work. As a group of atheists, and I always find it interesting, if they don't believe in God, why do they invest so much energy in fighting him, right? I mean, if you don't believe in ghosts, you probably don't go around your house lighting sage and trying to chase them off. (laughs) Yet these people do exactly just that, and they've cropped up most recently in a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, upset that the Speaker was calling for a uh, congressional event to include prayer marking the anniversary of January the 6th. Let's find out more about this. Brad Dacus joins us, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Uh, 
Counselor, I appreciate you taking time to join us. And, you know, there is so much to do about distortions related to First Amendment rights, the, the Establishment Clause, and the notion that somehow the Establishment Clause means that we have to have a religious free zone within the public square, which is not only uh, patently false, but yet it is a mantra that they hang on to, um, and repeatedly so. Tell us a bit about uh, more about this particular story, and, and whether or not this is just a bunch of hot air, or do they really have any grounds to stand on when they're demanding that such matters as uh, public prayer related to so-called political events or events that are attended by politicians, which I guess by that very nature makes them political events, that somehow religion can't play any role in that whatsoever. Uh, yeah, this, uh, this atheist group, Craig, uh, is, uh, is, is way out of line, but we've seen this over and over again. Their end resolve is to basically remove and eliminate, to sterilize the marketplace, the public square of all faith, of all religion, of all religious expression. Um, but the reality is that uh, the uh, Supreme Court, in a number of cases, uh, have actually upheld uh, the constitutionality, uh, particularly for, for Congress, for example. They can uh, open uh, their sessions in prayer. Uh, that's, uh, that's protected. Um, that's not a, a state endorsement of a particular uh, theology or particular de- denomination. Um, this is also voluntary. It's not, uh, we're not talking about forcing kids in a, in a classroom that they have no choice to be in, uh, to have to pray. Uh, this is a voluntary prayer vigil recommended by Congress, by the Speaker of the House. Uh, this, uh, I, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. Uh, this is the kind of case that I would personally love to argue myself in defense of Pelosi, which you just actually, I can't believe I just said that, but um, I would be more than happy uh, to uh, defend uh, her ability to, to say what she said and, and to prescribe uh, the opportunity for such a prayer vigil. Part of this letter that they sent to the House Speaker that uh, maybe you can shed some light on. They say in relationship to prayer taking place, and I quote, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits government actors from using their position to endorse a religious message. Close quote. Does it really, or is a better word um, used here, uh, not endorse, but express? It, It seems to me that there's a big difference between government endorsing religious behavior versus a member of, name the branch of government, expressing their religious faith in a public fashion. I mean, is there anything in the Constitution that suggests that once you are sworn into office, you must disavow any public affiliation with your religious belief whatsoever? Yeah, absolutely not. The, uh, you know, you go back all the way to George Washington and uh, his uh, famous farewell address and uh, and other speeches that he and other founding fathers have given throughout American history uh, have uh, mentioned God, have called upon Americans to pray. Uh, even in the you know, the 1900s, uh, you know, we've seen that happen. And just in, uh, you know, even you know, President George W. Bush uh, called on America to pray. I think Donald Trump has called on America to pray. Uh, maybe even, uh, maybe even uh, Barack Hussein Obama, I don't know. But the point is, is that uh, they're bucking not only the Constitution uh, based on original intent, they're also bucking uh, the uh, the actual practice that's been carried out time and time again by those in public office 
at public events. You know, we at Pacific Justice Institute, we defended uh, Pastor Rick Warren when he was sued to presidential inauguration of President Obama, and uh, and we won, and we won on appeal, uh, even though it was a government public event. Not only could they recommend prayer, they could actually have someone lead it and have a, that be a formal part of the official public ceremony, the inauguration of a president. So um, they, uh, they're they're trying to intimidate, but the Constitution and case law is not behind them. And, and am I accurate in saying that we have to make a clear delineation between a government official endorsing a religious belief as opposed to expressing because to me, endorsement suggests that somehow it's being compelled upon others um, or, or being mandated or in, in some heavy-handed fashion, as opposed to uh, a member of, again, na- name the, the, the political position who simply publicly expresses their religious faith. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of latitude that politicians have. They don't shed their First Amendment rights when they become elected officials. Uh, we've defended school board members uh, and, and others in this capacity. So, uh, no, Craig, the, the, the bottom line, they're, they're free to express their faith, express their convictions. Uh, they can even uh, uh, proselytize their faith. Um, but they can't um, uh, use their position to give preference uh, to one uh, faith or one group over another. Um, that's clearly established case law. And uh, they have to they have to be neutral in how they actually carry out their policies and practices in terms of opportunities and benefits, incentives, et cetera. That's where it really comes into play. Not a politician just expressing their beliefs, their perspectives in an address or in a speech. If it, if it takes the form of some sort of a litmus test, that's one thing. But that, of course, is not at all what we're talking about here. And for the, quote-unquote, Freedom From Religion Foundation suggests that this is, quote, improper marriage of state and church, close quote. Clearly, there's a lot of basic definitions here that they're very unclear themselves on. Well, we appreciate you helping clarify this for all of us. And uh, again, this notion that somehow um, the Establishment Clause suggests that we have to be in a religious-free zone in the public square is absolute nonsense. And they ought to go back to school and learn the basic difference between endorsing versus expressing. We appreciate Brad Dacus for expressing his insights from a constitutional standpoint on the topic. He, of course, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, strap into your seatbelts. If you're driving, you should already be in that position anyway, because it's going to be a bumpy ride as we explore a couple of important topics. Um, A little bit later on in our conversation, as time permits, we're going to talk a bit about how it is that California, every time we have... 30 seconds worth of budget surplus that whomever happens to be in charge of Sacramento, namely Democrats, managed to figure out a way to spend it. 
Let's not save anything for a rainy day. Let's not pay down any indebtedness. Let's not prepare for the next potential emergency that will surely at some point hit our state, as I will promise you the sun will rise tomorrow. No, let's not be responsible in that fashion, but rather we got 10 extra cents. Let's figure out how to spend it. The other issue, and the more pressing one that I want to talk about, is one that could potentially impact the quiet enjoyability of your home, thanks to a new piece of legislation that was signed in September by the governor, went into effect January of this year, Senate Bill 9, that on its face purports to address California's housing crisis, but in reality might just simply become a buy-it-and-flip-it dream for real estate investors and could take the quiet enjoyment of your own home in the neighborhood that you've bought, lived there, raised your kids there. You're there because you like it. You're there because maybe it's close to good schools, close to work, all of that. Imagine suddenly finding out that you one day might wind up living sandwiched between a number of multi-resident buildings. They say, well, never happened. Planning Commission won't let that happen. <laughs> well, Senate Bill 9, they don't have any choice to help us understand this, as it particularly goes to one of the core historical pillars of the foundation of America, property rights. We're calling upon CPA lawyer, constitutional historian, and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today, Bob Zadek, best-selling author, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard weekdays, I'm sorry, Sundays at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m., The Answer. And Bob, as always, we appreciate so much you taking some time to be with us. And I appreciate the offer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start off... Uh, since you introduced a wonderful topic, SB 9, um, uh, the recently enacted and signed into law legislation, and you introduced it, Craig, by making reference to the fact that the goal of SP 9 is to cure the housing crisis or sometimes referred to as the housing shortage. I want to, uh, while I thank you for identifying me as a CPA and a lawyer and all that stuff, but I'm going to try a new profession, linguist. And now wearing my linguistic hat, I'm going to ask you, Craig, to back up one half a step and tell me, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. Not to humiliate you in front of all of your loyal listeners, because it will not, but it's a two-part question which will set the tone of our discussion. The two-part question is, part A, what do you or what does anybody mean, just what do they mean by housing shortage? And the second question is, do we have a housing shortage in California? So let's start there. Let's go back half a step and those two questions. And by answering them, you will set us up for the rest of the conversation that follows. All right. Fair enough. And and I think, uh, you know, in the most simplistic of terms, I would define the quote unquote housing shortage as more people wish to reside in a given locality 
then perhaps there are existing dwellings. Let me now, stop there. Let me stop there, because I cleverly manipulated you, and you didn't even know. Now, you said your words, I have witnesses, we have, there are more people who want to live in California than we have housing for them. Now, how many people on earth do you think your phrase, want to live in California? Your phrase, I'm not, I'm not putting words in your mouth, you said it. How many people on earth want to live in California? Uh, if probably I, if I had a several a hundred guess, million. I, yeah, I would say if I had to hazard a guess, I'd probably say of the of the six billion on the planet, probably at least four. <laughs> Hello. Yep. Yep. Go ahead, Robert. Sorry, I didn't hear you. So, so therefore, you cannot may have meant what you said that. It is a housing shortage if all the people who want to live here can't find a place to live. In other words, the entire country has a housing shortage because how many people want to live in America? A lot more than we have housing. So therefore, the fact that somebody wants to live here is irrelevant. The list of things that I want is endless. Who cares what Bob wants? It, that, so therefore, we start with a definition of housing shortage that makes absolutely no sense whatever. And if I may, I therefore posit to you and to the audience, we do not have and never have had a housing shortage. Anybody who wants to live here will find a place to live, comma, if they can't afford it. So we don't have a housing shortage. We have a shortage of housing that's cheap enough that somebody who simply wants to live here can't afford it. Who cares if somebody simply wants to live here, hasn't got enough money, and therefore can't live here? How many things do you want, Craig? that you don't have because you can't afford it. Oh, it's a long list. <laughs> so what are we talking about? Change the subject, because there's no housing shortage. Next subject. <laughs> Put uh, Knock down the, the gavel on that one. We're off to the next theme. Let, let's get to the heart of what this particular misguided, in my opinion, Bill, is and attempting mine. to do. And, and, and in particular... Um, I, I have to tell you, on, on face value, Bob, I find this very troublesome because it completely removes from the equation um, my ability to have any say-so in this whatsoever by virtue of the fact that by almost fiat, and these days in a, um, a Democrat-controlled state legislature, as we've had for many years now, Essentially, the laws that are passed down feel like they're passed down by executive fiat, where once passed, as in the case of Senate Bill 9, this is very craftily written that precludes local municipalities, counties, from having any input whatsoever as to the nature of this particular law. 
And so therefore, if I thought I could have some relief by saying, well, not in my neighborhood, I'm going to go down to the next planning commission meeting, I'm going to show up at City Hall, I'm going to be at the next city council meeting and say, I don't want to live in a neighborhood that was designed for five houses that now suddenly has high density, 10, ten, ten you know, uh, single family dwellings all shoehorned into one small piece of real estate. So let's not let's not play ball with this. And unfortunately, the way this measure is written, local municipalities, meaning local property owners, ultimately have no say so whatsoever. You're exactly right. And just to show you how now it's it's claimed those people who are the proponent of SB9 claim that it is patently unfair for us who live in single family houses to move in to quite a pleasant lifestyle and then pull up the drawbridge, if you will, and say, we're in, no one else, we're not going to make room for anybody else. That strikes others as being unfair. But I would point out that a large number of Americans live in what is called, and I don't like the phrase, but at least it's descriptive, a gated community where they move into a community that was built and there are property, uh, a local property owners association control what you can plant, the color of your house, what you can do, and you, so you have almost no property rights, but, but, you knew that going in, and you said, that's okay, I am willing to give up some control over my property, because the other benefits I get, whatever that may be, are worth it. So, the owner who moves into a gated community says, I'm in, and I'm willing to pay for it. One can argue that when you and I, I'm presuming you live in a single-family house, when you and I bought our house, there was not the formality of a homeowner's association, but something pretty close. There were zoning rules, and we said, the zoning rules will protect the value of my property. When the zoning rules get changed, it's like... A contract, not a formal contract, but in effect a contract between the homeowner and its local government has been broken. Just like a homeowners association changing the rules after the homeowner buys a house, which they cannot do. And so I use that example in strong support of exactly what you say, even though the effect of it the effect of it is there are not going to be two or four family houses in your neighborhood, which means three other people don't get to live there. I say, I don't care if people can't live where they want. That's not my problem. Any more than it's your problem if I can't buy the car that I want because I can't afford it. 
And of course, at the end of the day, the problem with this legislation is that it's making it all of our problems. And I want to take just a moment here for the benefit of listeners to kind of explain the crux of Senate Bill 9 and why this is so problematic. And then we'll dive into some of the constitutional aspects and questions that this raises when we come back after a break. So again, the passage of this particular measure, Senate Bill 9, on face value, purports underscore, capitalized, italicized, bold, purports to address housing shortages. As Bob Apley puts out, points out, probably more accurately put, there are um, people who want to live in a place, there's no place for them to live, so they want to be able to basically use the law in their favor to change things so that they can, so they can effectively force their will on others. And I, and I, purposely choose the phrase force their will because I would imagine when you bought your home or rented your home in the neighborhood in which you reside, there were certain expectations going in. One of the expectations was that if you wanted to live in a high-density neighborhood, you'd probably live inside of um, a high-rise apartment building in a downtown area somewhere. But you didn't choose to do that. You instead chose to live in a suburb. In a neighborhood where you know how many houses there are, you know how many people live there, you know how many cars, practically speaking, can show up on your city street. This particular measure says, guess what? You can take a parcel, minimum 2,400 square feet, which is tiny, 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 compared to the average parcel size in the Bay Area is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,500 to 8,000 square feet. On as little as 2,400 square feet, you could tear down a house, divide that property in half, put up two homes or a duplex, and call it done. So if you've got a piece of property that's on average six, 7,000 square feet, well, ostensibly speaking, I suppose you could go in and say, hey, I'm going to put up a small apartment building here. There is nothing within this particular measure to not only prevent that from happening, but in fact, specifically blocks local municipalities from having any say-so. So if you think you're going to find some relief from the local planning commission to go in and argue that you bought a home that's sandwiched between two other single-family homes, and now your neighbor is proposing to put a, say, six-unit apartment building up right next to you, casting shadows into your backyard, ruining your views, creating more density, meaning more traffic, all of it, guess what? Local city council, local planning commission can provide you no relief whatsoever. This is problematic, and it, I fear, in a state like California, with absolutely over-the-top Housing prices may very well become a buy it, tear it down, and flippers dream. What about the constitutionality of all this when it comes to property rights and quiet enjoyment? We'll talk about that in our conversation with best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. He hosts The Bob Zadek Show. Heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Bob Zadek as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back. Our conversation continues. Best-selling author, constitutional lawyer, and of course, our constitutional historian, lawyer, and the host of the Bob Zadek Show. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We are talking about Senate Bill 9, which allows single-family residential property owners to split their lot in order to build another home or a duplex on the parcel. And the real baseline regulation is you have to have a minimum of 2,400 square feet on the lot in order to do this. And it precludes local municipalities, planning commissions, and the like from having any say-so whatsoever. All this under the guise of addressing, quote-unquote, the housing Shortage. Not only has Bob taught us a lesson in terms of what a misnomer that really is, but the bigger issue here, the more problematic issue, is what it means for property rights. And and, and Bob, maybe walk us through this from a from a historical standpoint. I mean, what, one of the key issues related to the very founding of this nation was the whole question of property rights. How problematic is this if suddenly, while it might not be affecting your property immediately or directly, as if somebody's building the property in, you know, in your front yard, but right next door to you, and the potential impact on things like quiet enjoyment? I mean, if you bought a house next to another single-family dwelling and then one day wake up and find that there's a five-unit apartment building there, and with it, the traffic, the noise, the shadows, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't that have a deleterious impact on both your property values as well as the issue of quiet enjoyment? Okay, Craig, get ready. Now, you have presented the issue as clearly a defender of property rights. Obviously, it's implicit in the way you frame the issue. You are a property rights advocate, and you are unhappy with SB 9, because it interferes with your property rights. Is that a pretty fair summary? Simplistic, quite, quite fair? accurate. Quite accurate. Okay. Now, I'm going to be in the role of your next door neighbor. And I live next door. <clears throat> and I bought a house in pretty sorry condition. And I kind of need money. I, don't, I lost my job. But I have a, I have some land, and I want to. I choose to survive by getting the most economic value out of Craig, my property next door to Craig. And I say, why should I be prohibited from doing what I can to economically enjoy my property? any way that I want. Craig, after all, isn't that my property right? And if so, why are your property rights to not live next to a fourplex superior to my property rights to build on my property what I choose to build because I need the money? Isn't it simply a conflict between one person's property rights and another person's property rights. So isn't SB9 property right neutral? I'm going to argue that it is not because it has a direct impact on quality of life, quiet enjoyment, property values. If the 
If the demolition of your home and the construction of, you know, a five or six unit apartment building on the same parcel of land had no impact whatsoever, if this was the equivalent of I'm tearing the house down right now, it, it you know, the, the garage is to the left, I'm going to tear the house down, put up the garage, it's going to be to the right of the house then I would say, yeah, that's pretty neutral. But I think the argument here is that such actions are not neutral when it comes to um, the impact on the quality of life that I would enjoy if suddenly your house that's gone from one single-story, single-family dwelling to multiple-story, multiple families and the ensuing traffic, the impact that it has on other resources such as infrastructure, as well as, well, what happened to all the beautiful sun I have in my backyard? It's now under the shade of your building. I can no longer plant a vegetable garden, for example. So I would say in that sense, it directly, in a negative way, impacts my enjoyment of my property and therefore the value And that's the reason why, typically, historically, communities have things like city councils, planning commissions, uh, uh, building regulations, things of this sort, so that that there is a greater sense of fairness and parity for all property holders. But Senate Bill 9 seems to preclude that sense of fairness. Well, at least... You had a bit of a challenge. You did a superb job, no surprise. But you had to think for a bit about conflicting property rights. But I come down strongly on your side for a different reason. I, as you know, you and I have spoken on your show from time to time about federalism, which means power to localities, states, and then to cities at the expense of power in Washington. The more local the power, the more control you and I have over our lives, and the more freedom we have to move from one locale to another if we don't like where we're living. Uh, And to the extent that there's local control, it provides us choices. Therefore, I abhor SB9 because SP9 usurps local control with Sacramento control. One size fits all. And they are asking your community to bear a burden of alleged lack of housing in California. Why should your community, why should you have to absorb a burden that your community is not affected by. It's somebody else's problem. It's not like anything in the state of California is your problem. Most of it is not your problem. Your problem is what affects you individually. So I strongly support your disappointment with SB9, uh, but for the reason of I like and strongly prefer local control. I find it not unfair the fact that the community where you live or I live or anybody lives makes a decision to enhance the quality of its, of its residents, even if it means somebody else can't live there. Nobody has an inherent right to live anywhere, and it's the government's job to make sure they, anybody can afford 
to live anywhere they want. I have no right to live on Rodeo Drive or Park Avenue, no inherent right. And therefore, I cannot be heard to complain if I can live on Billionaire's Row in Manhattan. I want to live there. I, Billionaire's Row, I want to live with billionaires. I don't have the right to do that. I don't have the right to live anywhere in this world that I don well please. I have the right to live where I can afford to live and obey the laws. Just like I don't have the right to have any car or any clothing or any restaurant meal that I want. I have the right to have what I can afford. And and local control should not pick up the tab on trying to give people something they want but they can't afford. And I'll close, Craig, with a reminder to our audience. The fact that you want something doesn't mean you have the right to have it. Remember that phrase. That will guide you. Let me ask you this, Bob. From a constitutional standpoint, we understand, of course, that states' rights are are enshrined in the United States Constitution. But what about local municipalities? I mean, how 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 low in the totem pole, so to speak, does this power flow? heading up toward the federal level. Because what I find particularly troubling about this this measure is that it intentionally precludes local municipalities from being able to pass any rule or regulation that would prohibit this or that would put uh, more stringent guidelines in. Even if a community says, you know, we're all for adding additional housing, but we have concerns over infrastructure, for example. And if we suddenly start to sandwich in significant a number of new homes in an area that intentionally initially was never designed to accommodate that many families can the schools absorb the additional students can the infrastructure water electricity sewer lines provide adequate services for everyone that would potentially be impacted so help us understand from that from that viewpoint i mean it, it this is feeling like well, at the state level, the state has decided this is what they're going to do. And uh, for those of you that live at the, you know, are concerned at the municipality level, oh, well, too bad. States, you ask a constitutional question. Um, states in general um, have the right to enact zoning laws and to pass laws governing the use of your property. They have that right. However... However, uh, states cannot take away your property without just compensation because the, the, uh, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution uh, prohibits that uh, eminent domain without, ta- without just compensation. However, there's a related concept. The state is not taking your property. It's just enacting regulations that affect your property, and it is possible that a regulation which doesn't take away your property but just so limits your use and enjoyment that it your property removes, loses all of its value, and thus um, it's in effect the same as a taking. You have no more value. That is called, the, the constitutional concept is called a regulatory taking. A regulatory taking is a government 
enacting laws that affect the use and enjoyment of your property to such an extreme that it's tantamount to a taking, and under those circumstances, you have to be compensated. But zoning changes as a kind of SB9 is so far away from a regulatory taking um, because you still can live in your house, you can live in your house, you just have to grunt and be unhappy about your neighbors. That uh, is clearly under existing law, and it's not going to change, far from a regulatory taking. Therefore, it doesn't invite constitutional scrutiny. Boy, though, it sure might invite some interesting lawsuits. <laughs> time, time will bear that out. I want to pivot in the time that we have left before the top of the hour, Bob, to the topic of the budget and the budget surplus. Um, California, of course, uh, you know, like a lot of states, has struggled through aspects of the current crisis related to COVID. Uh, however, we've also benefited quite nicely due to the current crisis called COVID, uh, largely because there were a lot of federal dollars being sent to the state of California um, during the course of COVID that, uh, quite frankly, we didn't need to the tune of having now in the state budget a surplus of approximately $31 billion. I'm kind of old-fashioned. I think, well, if you got a little extra, squirrel some away because there'll be a day when you don't have so much extra. You might have an emergency. You might have a natural disaster that requires those resources. California instead has the idea, hey, we've got two extra cents left over. Let's go figure out a way to spend them. And certainly the governor is, is looking at doing that, not least of which includes a plan that would essentially provide, and I always laugh when they talk about free health care since the end of the day there's no free lunch and no free health care but the governor is proposing to take the 31 billion dollar budget surplus and one of the big things that he wants to do is to provide medical care for all californians including those that reside here illegally how dangerous is this proposal not only from a fiscal standpoint but the door that it opens trying to sort of codify the notion that everybody has access to all the same benefits whether or not you are contributory in covering the costs uh, it's a two-part um it wasn't intended to be but i think what you've asked is a two-part question you asked uh, how expensive would it be well, the answer to that is we have no idea. Right now, it's just a concept, and it depends upon what services are guaranteed to California residents. If the free health care is limited to one visit to a doctor a year, it's cheap. If it's everything, then it's expensive. So... The first question is the program dictates the cost, and then as soon as we finish figuring out the cost, the next question is how does it get paid for? And right now, the there are a lot of trial balloons, if you were, out there. They're talking about a gross receipts tax on business. They're talking about a tax on people who make more than $490,000 a year. They're talking about People with money paying for people who don't have money. And in effect, what I do is when I hear universal free, you're right about free, health care, I say, I don't, it is just one of a great number of tools 
by which progressives will do Robin Hood-esque transactions by taking money from people who, in their opinion, have more than enough to give it to people who don't have enough. I find that to be absolute theft. Nothing in our history allows, gives government the inherent power to decide that another human being has the inherent right to property you have lawfully, lawfully acquired more than your right to your own property. Nothing, there's no principle of government that creates that right. It's legislated charity. It's charity where you don't get to pick the recipient, but you're forced to give it. And it's so obscene to me, so that health care is free health care, not free, is a subset of the larger issue of property transfers, forced transfers by government, the only organization that is permitted to take away your life and your liberty, government, which is allowed to carry guns and to use them, is simply forcing you, forcing you to give your property to a human being you have never met for the simple reason that an elected official decides that human being is more deserving of your property than you are. So health care is simply one way to do it. And it's you use the gloss of making people healthier, but that's like that gives you cover to transfer money from A to B. And you know, in a state like California, if we wanted to give people the option, like for example on our ten forty tax return. You have the option of contributing a dollar, I think it's $3 now, to the presidential election campaign fund. That is an elective donation from your taxes. So if California said, we're going to give an option to California taxpayers, if you would like to contribute an additional $1,000, whatever the number might be, or percentage of your income, as you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes to cover the health care costs of people that are in the state illegally, and this was money that was um, solicited from and voluntarily given by taxpayers. No problem with that. What they're looking at doing here is a 2.3% gross receipts tax on all businesses that earn more than $2 million annually, and that's a small business, comparatively speaking. And a new payroll tax that would charge all of us 1.25% of our annual wages. California certainly is doing a lot in the effort to try and shift wealth from those that have it to those that don't, just because, well, A, they apparently feel they can, and B, because people want it. Which takes us back to the beginning of our conversation with Bob Zadak tonight. And that is just because you want something doesn't mean that you necessarily have a right to it. I want to live in Beverly Hills, but I don't have a right to it. Bob Zadak, constitutional 
historian, CPA, lawyer, host of the Bob Zadek Show. We invite you to check his program out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. You'll find all kinds of resources there, information about his books that are available for purchase, as well as podcasts and notes on recent guests. And, of course, you're invited to make an effort to tune in Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. for the Bob Zadek Show. He's one of the brightest and has one of the longest-running libertarian talk shows in the country. The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, here locally in the San Francisco Bay region on 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time, the intellectual challenge, and the insights. There's Bob Zadek. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 